we're doing chapter 3, and I'm calling it chapter 3A. I doubt I'll get through the whole outline of chapter 3A today, but uh, we're on a series called What in God's Earth is the Kingdom of Heaven? What in God's Earth is the Kingdom of Heaven? And uh, section 1, we're calling an introduction to the Kingdom of God, a survey of kingdom concepts. And if you look on the back of your outlines for chapters 1 and 2, I had enough room on those to list the 14 or so titles of section one. And what I'm trying to do is cover this, uh, go through these 14 chapters in two or three Sundays apiece and get, so there'll be an A, B, and C of some of them, but to uh, give us at least an introduction to the fact that the whole Bible has one unifying theme, the theme of the kingdom of God. So, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is, is in heaven. In the Bible, the idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is not something about the next world. It's something about bringing the eternality and the manifest presence of God and the perfections of the next world into the earth here and now. And so uh, we covered uh, the fact in chapter one that it was, it's the central most important topic in all of scripture. Uh, We covered in chapter 2 some definitions of the kingdom of God. Uh, We gave you 12 of those, and that took uh, two two messages. Uh, Now we're going to start into uh, what was God's original plan. What I'm trying to do with each of these chapters is introduce them with a question. So the question today is, did God have an original plan? It's clear from the Bible that God lives in eternity, which is not a long, long, long period of time, but it's a realm outside the the realm of time. And that he created the time-space continuum and the material dimensions of the universe for his predetermined plan. And so um, finding and cooperating with that predetermined eternal plan is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's the, the only valid purpose for life. And so um, you will always have some sense of boredom or lack of fulfillment uh, or sense that you haven't zeroed in on the target until you zero in on the a relationship with the, the triune God and his purposes for his people and how you mesh in with his people. And so today we're going to look at uh, this from a historical perspective. And uh, in order to do this, um, I I need to lay a couple groundworks, uh, three in particular. The first one is the fact that God has an original plan. And I want you to make the connection that if he is God, one of the things that almost all theologians agree upon is that we have become more and more man-centered in our thinking, and therefore we've had a diminished view of God that is less than who the Bible presents him to be. So if he is God, if he is eternal, if he is omnipotent, if he is omniscient, if he is uh, all-loving, all-wise, etc., if he's immutable, then he must have known the end from the beginning and determined it to be so. Any other view of God is is a God that's less than the God of the Bible and less than a God that's omniscient. So let's look at some scripture along this line. And starting with Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Now, when I put like A and B and this kind of thing, it's because I, I try to limit myself every week to what I can fit on the back and front of a page. So I'm actually going back and editing and taking out words and doing whatever I can to make it work. If I can get, get the scripture to fit on one last line by jumping in right in the middle, uh, and then I do so. So, in Isaiah, so I would encourage you whenever you see that to look these up in your own Bible. Hopefully you bring a Bible to church and so forth, or you have Bibles at home that you can review these outlines. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, for I am God and there is no other, period. That's very important to see. He is God, there's no other. All the other would-be gods are nothing in his sight. They are mere, they're merely the inventions of creatures. 
Both the satanic creatures and the human creatures have invented many so-called gods, but none of them are God. He is God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Now, many witchcraft and occultist people try to predict the future, but their predictions are somewhat suspect at best. Uh, They, of course, play percentages and things like this. Because even the satanic realm doesn't know anything more about the future than what the scriptures give us. But God declares the end from the beginning. Now, whenever you see the word end, uh, the Greek version of this is the word telos, which we get the branch of philosophy called teleology. And that's the idea that in the nature of things, there's a created goal and purpose that can be discerned. So God declares his goals, his purpose, how it's all going to come out from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. It's immutable. There there are would-be enemies of God, such as fallen humanity, nation states kings and so forth that raise raise themselves up against the king of kings Polit- politicians etc there are satanic and demonic version enemies of god but in the end they all serve his purpose isn't that amazing isn't that i i don't think i'd want to be worshiping anybody less <laughs> My purposes will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 2.7, Paul says, We do speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages. Now, a mystery, just to remind us from the first couple of teachings, a mystery is something that God declares all through the scriptures, but in such a way that Fallen man cannot discover it until he is illumined by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, through Christ, as the veil is removed in Christ to understand the mysteries. But when you do see the mysteries, you kind of do like the V8 commercial. Oh, it was there all along. One of the great examples of this is in the in the Bible is in Acts chapter 10. God... Uh, goes to a lot of trouble to send some angels to see a God-fearing Gentile uh, commander of the Roman army named Cornelius. And he tells Cornelius exactly where Peter will be staying in a nearby town, what uh, exactly what house. He tells him it's Joppa and Simon the Tanner's house and all this kind of thing. Uh, and so they set out a day's journey to find it. And meanwhile, he's uh, visiting uh, Peter first with a vision of unclean animals coming down and going back up, and then by the Holy Spirit saying, don't regard what I've called clean, uh, unclean anymore. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, there's, there's some men going to knock at the gate, and when they get here, go with them without misgivings. So, God, I mean, that, if that doesn't open your faith a little bit, I don't know what would. But then when Peter gets there, he, it actually takes him until he gets a whole day's journey back to Cornelius' house, And after he enters the house and begins to speak, his eyes are open to what Scripture said all along. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are literally over a thousand verses in the Old Testament that tell us that the kingdom of God would be for all nations, the coastlands, the Gentiles, and so forth. And Peter didn't see it till that moment. After three and a half years of discipleship, and this is approximately three to five years after the coming of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, and he's missing a major thread of biblical truth. Now, if that doesn't get you to be humble, probably nothing will. I'm so amazed at how many uh, know-it-all opinions that are not very studied there are in America today, but that's kind of how our culture is. Everybody is brought up to, to be very firm, emphatic about their feelings and thoughts and opinions, even if they've never studied much of this or that, philosophically or theologically. God speaks in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which he predestined before the ages. 
Hebrews 10, or Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead of the great sheep, or the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, equip you with every good thing to do his will, working in us. See, God, when you come to know Christ, God begins to work in you. And what he's working in you is what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Now, that word, the eternal covenant, you have to really think that through biblically a little. Eternity is not a long, long time. It's outside of time. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one triune God, three persons in one being, forever had perfect fellowship outside and above time, and they always, and we use words like always, but they're, they just are, they just is, they be what they be, uh, had a covenant. And that covenant is none other than what the Bible calls the new covenant. The oldest covenant of all eternity is what the Bible reveals finally as the new covenant. And that God would create a people and that God himself would come and be the sacrifice to, to rescue them. That was always God's predetermined plan. Now, I, I like the, a little bit of, there's a scene from uh, a silly movie called Airplane, which is, I think, from the 70s. And uh, one of the characters in it uh, is, is, like, always freaking out, and so he, and he's a little effeminate, and so he's like, Annie M, Annie M, there's a twister, there's a twister. And, I, you know, you hear me do, if you hear me do that once in a while, that's because I'm thinking of that scene in that movie. But... Unfortunately, most of us have that kind of view of God in our heart. You can tell if you ever worry. Because if we understand who God is, Jesus said, don't be anxious. Worry is God's gift to you to help you understand that your view of God is still less than God. And that you're divided between two opinions in your heart about who is running the show of your life. You're still trying to exercise some control, which God came to save you from. God came to save all of us control freaks who want to be as God and knowing for our, ourselves what is good and evil. Now, you can read the other verses that I left there. We'll move down to a word about covenant. Covenant... So if, if you, uh, hopefully just to reiterate the first point is that God's original plan must be his ongoing, current, and eternal plan. He didn't go, oh, Lord, oh my God, <laughs> I didn't have a plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. He's just continuing to progress toward his plan A. Now, I remember a, a, a certain group of Christian leaders that I followed in the 70s and and they had begun to discover these things about the kingdom of God and so forth. And it was a very powerful and anointed movement. And I remember some of the leaders going, we don't have a plan B. Later, the way things worked out, many people said they should have had a plan B. You may need a plan B, but God doesn't. And your only plan B should be to reevaluate what plan A was in the first place because you, you, you didn't fully comprehend it because you're human. The only plan B you need is to continue to study the things of the Lord and ask God to open your eyes to what his plan A is more fully. That's, that should be your plan B and your plan A. Now, uh, a word about covenants. In the, as we're going to get into Genesis 1 today, we're going to see that the Bible uh, purposely uses the literature and the form of the nations around it and presents itself to mean exactly the opposite of the cultures around it. In other words, Genesis 1 is a literary form that they, that's taken from the what's called the mythopoeic cosmogonies of the nations around it. I think I'm scheduled to talk about what that means here at some point. And uh, 
as it does, it slaps them in the face with exactly the opposite meaning. Okay, so uh, now with that in mind, the Bible is a, a book of covenants. God's king always had in mind to bring the kingdom of God, and his kingdom was always intended to be through a people that were born of him, that manifested his nature and glory, that reproduced it, and that filled the earth with his glory, and that he was in covenant with those people, that they were his special people and his special treasure. That was what Adam was called to, Noah, Abraham, as we're going to see, and, on, and so forth. But all of them fell short of it. But God foreknew that they would fall short of it. And it was all part of his predetermined plan. I like to, uh, I like to do this with my wife sometimes when th economics aren't going well or whatever is not going well. And uh, I'll just say, don't worry, I planned it this way. <laughs> and <laughs> well, we can't really get away with that that often, but God can. He did plan it this way. So I want you to become so convinced of God's sovereignty and his predestination that when you fall down the steps, you worship the Lord and thank him and say, thank you, Lord, that that one's over with. What's next? <laughs> and, uh, and you trust him. So uh, covenants, the, 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 the covenants of the Bible are actually based on what's called the suzerainty covenants or suzerain treaties of the ancient uh, East, of the ancient Near East, or what's called the Levant. That is the, the, the covenants of the Hittites and the Mesopotamians and the Medes and the Persians and so forth. Now, these covenants uh, were uh, a Lord imposing his will on a vassal. In other words, the, uh, one nation would conquer another. This happened seven times in the world of Mesopotamia in a period of, oh, about 2,000 years. And each time the new, uh, the Hittites, whoever gained ascendancy, they would impose on the nations a covenant. And it wouldn't be like a negotiation, like if we got together, if John Gray and I got together to... I don't know, do something. We might negotiate different terms as equals, of course. But God, the, 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 the ancient covenants were status. They, they believed in salvation by government. And they thought the government itself was a manifestation of the gods, very similar to what we're going back to in modern times. As, as the Christian uh, culture has crashed and uh, will be reasserted, by the way, in God's due time, because the Bible tells us it will. So, uh, but as the Christian uh, consensus has broken down, one of the best books I ever read was by a Harvard historian called Nationalism as, Re as Religion. And he basically was saying that as the Christian consensus broke down with the Enlightenment, a new religion emerged called nationalism. And nationalism is like, my country right or wrong. Uh, and it gave us World War I and World War II. Nationalism's gift to you. Uh, so, um, all men are religious, and all thought systems are complete, even if they're completely wrong. Okay, so, in the ancient cultures, the Lord nation would impose the will on the vassal by fear. And the, the covenant, you, had, you were invited into the covenant, but the inviting was in quotes, because you were conquered. And so it listed, these are the benefits that the Lord has already done for you by conquering you. <laughs> it was a little sarcastic almost. Uh, not really, but uh, they didn't intend it to be. But, you know, looking back on history, it seems like it is. These are the, the conquering Lord has done these great things for you. And now they will protect you in exchange for owning you and tribute and taxes and so forth. I will save you, says the Lord. <laughs> And, uh, and take all your money and your property and your wives and your children at the same time. That's called statism. We will save you. Uh, just sign your paycheck over, you know, the new IRS short form. You know, what is your name? What's your address? Where do you work? How much did you make? 
pay that amount. <laughs> that's you know that's what the that's what the uh, that's what statism wants. All statists always want to raise taxes, and 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 have the government control more because it's good for you. Um, you don't know what's good for yourself. So that's that's what, what the nature of these Susandry covenants were. Uh, you and you could accept them or reject them, except you couldn't reject them because you were conquered, but you couldn't make any alterations. It's kind of like in Star Wars. Remember when uh, Darth Vader uh, comes to Landio? I, I don't know my Star Wars. These guys do. Calrissian's uh, his his planet or his little thing, and and uh, you know Darth Vader changes the terms as they go. Remember that? And uh, and he goes, "Play, you better pray I don't change him again." It was like a little bit like that. That that might bring it to to our modern minds. Okay, so. The Bible actually uses the exact same forms in the covenant, except in God's covenant, you can enter it or not. You can't alter it, but you can enter it, and it's not imposed by, by conquering you by fear. It's imposed by conquering you by love. And it actually is freedom, but it's the opposite of what natural-minded men would consider to be freedom. It's freedom to be his love slave. And that covenant is the covenant he made with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David on all the way through to the new covenant. Now, so the basis is, is love or instead of fear. Um, you, it has bless. all of them have blessings versus curses. There's sanctions to the covenant and so forth. Now, I thought I'd mention, if you want to look at this on the internet there's, or read a couple of his books, there's a guy named Ray Sutton that uses an acronym THEOS uh, to, to give what he calls five, five uh, aspects of covenant. Sometimes some of people use his stuff to make six because they use the word S twice. But I'm going to give you eight things that all covenants in the Bible have, okay, that include his six. And a couple more. No extra charge either. So, what a deal. So, uh, I'm not sure these eight ingredients of biblical covenants are exhaustive. Um, perhaps there's a ninth or a tenth. But it seems that it's clear that all biblical covenants have these eight ingredients. Every single one of them. Now, before we go there, I want to make sure you understand that Galatians teaches us that even if it's a human covenant, once it's been put into place, you cannot add to it or alter it. Okay? The common idea of our day called dispensationalism, which says that there's this radical discontinuity between each of the covenants, is not biblically defensible if you don't throw out quite a few scriptures <laughs> to get there. All of God's covenants completely fulfill the previous covenant in order to make a better covenant. Okay, that's very important. Hebrews tells us three times that Jesus became the mediator of a better covenant. But that covenant does not obliterate the old covenant. It fulfills the old covenant. Otherwise, we would be worshiping a liar. The God of modern evangelicalism is, is not eternal at times. He's, not, he's schizophrenic. He doesn't know where he's going. And he's less than, uh, less than someone we can worship. He, God can't be less than omniscient and less than eternal. He can't be surprised and still be God. So here are the eight ingredients. First of all, the covenant always identifies the parties, frankly, uh, and declares the new order. Probably those should have been separate points, but I wanted to stay at eight since eight is the number of uh, new birth. <laughs> but uh, maybe they're, 
you know, maybe we'll get to 10 eventually. Nine's just not as important of a biblical number as eight or 10. So I wanted to come out one of those places. But uh, in biblical language, biblical covenants begin with God's absolute lordship and grace. And in fact, when you really come to know the Lord, what mo- happens to most people is they pray some kind of prayer. Or what ha- th- Their spirit gets quickened. They hear some portion of the gospel. Their spirit gets quickened. But in today's view, because we don't speak the full gospel, that only is a uh, adds some life that gives the possibility of being converted to seeing his lordship. Most people are still their own God at that point and have their own ideas and so forth. And uh, so they haven't seen the deficiency of their finite mind and their, and their mind twisted by sin and seen the absolute reliability of his perfect mind. Now, begin, be, biblical covenants begin with God knocking at your door and showing you that he's a, you know, a lot greater, bigger, more loving. I love you and I'm in control. And you're like, wow. And people who've gone to church for many years, who've graduated from Bible colleges and, and all kinds of things, have experiences where they meet that God. Or all of a sudden, uh, don't mind, I hope John Gray doesn't mind as I tell his testimony, but he testifies of at a certain point in time when he began to understand that God was sovereign, it changed the whole game for him, right? Uh, even though you'd already gone to Bible college. <laughs> so... You know, God announces who he is. I'm the absolute sovereign Lord. There is no other. And uh, you're lucky to have me, as I often say to my wife, who responds with, you're lucky to have me. (laughs) But with with God, it's true. (laughs) Uh, I'm not just kidding around. He grants the covenant. He tells you he is your redeemer. He's your salvation, and he is your king. Whoever becomes your Lord will become your king. Whoever becomes your Savior will become your Lord and king, I should have meant to say. And he then identifies the recipients of the covenant. God didn't come. God invites you into covenant individually, but he doesn't invite you just to stay individual. He invites you into his covenant purposes that are wrapped up with his covenant people. Called the church in the New Testament called the called out assembly in Moses time and he declares his intention to create a new world order that is to make all things new now this is very important to understand God never declares his intention like revolutionaries do to make all new things had a weird experience the other night with some guys in the car where we were talking about the who's uh, song called Won't Get Fooled Again, which I consider to be the most important rock song of all time because it was their response to the Beatles and the, and the Rolling Stones pro-revolution songs, and it's an anti-revolution song. And, uh, and while we were th- talking about it, I just had this sense from the Holy Spirit. I said, you know what? I'm going to turn on the radio and see if it's on. I have this feeling that it's probably on right now. And we turn on the radio, change stations like twice, got to... 104.7, which plays old classic rock, and it was on. <laughs> it was an amazing experience. <laughs> we were like, wow. And, uh, but, you know, the, you know, the words go, you know, meet the new boss. He's the same as the old boss. Read Animal Farm sometime. Fallen man always wants a political revolution. Fallen man wants to make all new things. And so it's okay to kill millions because that's a necessary purging process. That's what Lenin said. He said, if we have to kill tens of millions of people to bring about a more just and perfect society, that's a price worth paying. Because all worldviews, all religions, which all humanistic philosophies are, everyone has a full religion in their heart and mind. They just don't know it. And they have assumptions about reality and so forth, whether they've studied it or not. And all humanistic ones are totalitarian and they, but all, all religions have a doctrine of sin, that something went wrong somewhere. And in revolutionary thinking, that doctrine of sin is in those who own property or who are educated. So we've got to kill all the academics and all the property owners and so forth, which all revolutions do. 
study Pol Pot, Idi Amin, uh, the, you know, Lenin and Stalin, the, uh, the, you know, the Chinese Revolution, uh, uh, Mao. They all kill the property owners and, the, and anyone who's educated because they say they have a, a fatal flaw in them that can't be eradicated, so we've got to kill them. Well, guess what? Christianity says you have a fatal flaw and you've got to be killed. Except the killing is that you choose to exchange your life for Christ who already died for you. And you daily embrace dying to your own will so that you might live to his will. When God really starts working in your life, it'll be a little painful because he'll, he's going to insist on his will right all right so all covenants have this uh this identification of the parties who god is who the recipients are and a declaration that he's going to make all things new not all new things then they have a hierarchy god always appoints leaders as covenantal representatives like moses was when god's leaders are faithful his people are protected and when god's people are faithful to God, they obey their leaders. She obeys her leaders. All through the book of Numbers, you see different uh, challenges to Moses' authority. And, you know, Miriam's hand turns leprous and the, the earth opens up and swallows Korah and so forth. Because your response to God is actually your response to whoever God sends you as blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A fact my mother used to remind me of all the time when I was first becoming a Christian, even though I said, oh, man, I, I'm 17. Who wants to hear your mother tell you something about God? Uh, <laughs> you know, but I learned a lot of what I learned the first year I was a Christian from my mother. Painful as that was. Uh, <laughs> so, hierarchy. Ethical laws. The central section of the covenant defines how God's people are to live so that they can be his holy nation. Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 um, says that um, you shall be holy, for I am holy, because he's quoting from Leviticus 19.2. God's relationship with his people is an ethical relationship. We must be righteous... In, to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Now, that's why we did that whole grace series and we looked at what was called grace plus theologies because many forms of religion try to, by performance, attain righteousness, which will never happen. That's part of the lesson of the whole Bible. And so as you try to perfect yourself in and of yourself and, and, and be able to boast before God and man of what a godly person you are, you will always fall short horrendously. Not just a little bit here and there. However, if you receive his righteousness by grace, grace must always go unto grace. Grace must be upon grace. And it must live, lead to actually living more godly or righteous or you actually haven't received the real biblical grace. And those are the two errors we make today. There's this grace plus licentiousness view of grace that, oh, because I've, I've received the righteousness of Christ in Christ Jesus, I can just live however I want and continue at the core of my being to be a rebel and keep my favorite sins and so forth. Or a view of grace that uh, I've got to earn grace. Neither of those will get you anywhere. And in fact, you have to reorient yourself towards grace every day. But real grace will make you holy. Oaths. God's people always take an oath. There are vows publicly before God and man. That's why you state oaths and vows at a wedding. And that's why I always insist that you shouldn't write your own vows if you want to secondarily do that because it's the fad of our humanistic culture. I, I sometimes permit it as long as I've read them ahead of time. But it's the church and the scriptures that write the vows. God, man didn't create marriage. God created marriage. And the vows need to be the biblical vows that the church has always used. 
That's why I actually use vows that, that uh, are a little longer than usual. But I've looked at every Christian tradition in the history of Western culture and blended their thinking into the vows we use. Now, when we declare the creed, we're just doing what they actually did in New Testament times before the New Testament was even written. We're declaring some of the basic things of the oaths of the covenant. We're just reiterating the covenant before God and man and before the principalities and powers in heavenly places. You're actually doing spiritual warfare when you recite the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed or the symbol of Chalcedon or the Athanasian Creed. You're actually driving back the kingdom of darkness. You could get your sword out before you <laughs> recite it. You're stabbing at God's enemies. Now, all covenants have ceremonies of celebration. All biblical covenants are sealed with ceremonies, celebrations of enactment and reinforcement. Now, reinforcement is a, is a better word than reenactment because the covenant is made once and for all. You don't get married again. But in marriage, it's important to have an ongoing good sexual relationship because it's a reinforcement of the covenant. As a Christian, it's important to gather at least the first day of the week as a minimum because the first day of the week is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth and his making all things new. And you declare the covenant in the creed and you hear his word proclaimed in the scripture readings and you hear his word taught at Sunday school and in the message and so forth, and you worship him upholding the, his kingdom and his lordship before all the satanic majesties and in the very throne room of the heavenly king, and you reinforce the covenant by taking the supper he gave us to partake of. And you'll see all of those elements in all the covenants. People always talk about the dominion covenant with Adam, be fruitful, multiply. We're going to talk about that. But they miss the next point that he, God told him to eat. <laughs> he said, I've given you every tree and, and, and plant bearing fruit and you're to eat. <laughs> God beat rallies to it by three or 4,000 years. God said, you got to eat. <laughs> and, uh, and he had provided better food than rallies by far. Uh, no, no offense to rallies. But, uh, but eating was always a covenant meal with God himself and one another. That's how I got to be so fat. I have a lot of my appointments at restaurants. <laughs> Sometimes I go, you know, that in the Bible, you're supposed to go from glory to glory to be changed in God's image. I just go from restaurant to restaurant. But uh, <laughs> uh, just a little bad humor. Anyway, ceremonies of celebration. There's covenant meals. There's feast. Who would want to go to a wedding that doesn't have a reception? You know, if I could choose any wedding in history to go back to, I think I'd go to the wedding of Cana and see what it was like to have the wine run out and have God himself make new wine uh, that is the best wine that's perfectly aged on its day of conception, day of creation, and is the best wine probably that human beings have ever drank. What a, you know, Jesus didn't say, oh, weddings aren't that important to me. Human history began with a wedding. Jesus' first miracle was a wedding, and human history will end with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we, we proclaim that every week as we make our wedding vows again with our Savior that we're betrothed to as the bride of Christ. Which is why this idea of, of radically individualistic personal Savior uh, you cannot have God your, be your father if the church is not your mother. Signs and symbols. Uh, I'm just going to try to finish page one today on this, and that'll be chapter three. A, and next week we'll get into actual cases, but I need this. this uh, every covenant... Uh, has boundaries stipulated by laws, but it's also depicted in the covenant signs and symbols. 
Okay, now that's important. This is a covenant sign and symbol. And when, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance, it's not a reenactment. He doesn't die again, but it's not just a, a thought process. It's actually a reinstituting it. It's a, there's, there's grace in it. There's power in it. It's not just an abstract Greek remembrance and, and just an empty symbol. That's where we've come to in Western culture. But it's, but it's not an empty symbol. So we do it to renew the covenant, much like Israel would come before God to renew the covenant and read the law and so forth. Uh, every, you know, uh, that's why I love wedding rings, even though I can't wear one because my fingers are allergic. But uh, I think I'm going to get one on a chain, I think, or, or maybe get it tattooed on my finger or something. But uh, in any case, uh, all covenants have signs and symbols. And we've come to a place where our, our view of signs and symbolism is way too empty, at least in, uh, in some sections of the church today. All covenants have sanctions. There's blessings and curses for rece receiving the grace and obeying or not. All, see Deuteronomy 28 for one of the classic chapters on the sanctions of the covenant. God gave them 11 verses of promise if they would obey him, followed by 55 verses of curses if they would disobey him. And the... Um, the captivities of both the northern and southern kingdom, God fulfilled every one of those to a T beginning at 722 BC and continuing all the way to 70 AD. God fulfilled every curse of Deuteronomy 28 upon his people. There are always sanctions. We want to have like a, like we only emphasize the love and forgiveness of God and so forth. God is extremely loving, but he has this one little stipulation that he's God, not you. <laughs> and so when you align yourself under him correctly, it's a wonderful thing. When you don't, it's a miserable thing because he loves you. All covenants have uh, stipulations of succession. Covenants always focus on the heirs of the covenant. God intends for the covenant to continue from generation to generation. Training, discipleship, having children, raising them in the fear of the Lord is all one and the same thing. In Christ, we become family, and your real family biblically is first and foremost those who are sons and daughters of the Father. And, and you know, uh, the, your brothers and sisters, your kids, the, the people in their church are their aunts and uncles and were to, were to bear fruit both biologically but most importantly to bear the fruit of Christ in this kingdom. Nothing is a greater joy than when your biological children become your spiritual children. But it's all about reproducing sons and daughters always. I've, we've actually sometimes been criticized as a church because John Gray just turned 31 this week, and he's one of our oldest members. Let me just tell you, I love Larry and myself and my wife and Lisa, our four people that are over 31. <laughs> and I'm glad we have us and I hope our gray hair means wisdom and, and any, many resources. But what I really want to do with any of you is make you an excellent husband and an excellent father or an excellent wife and an excellent mother. And to, to do that so that both your spiritual children and hopefully your biological children will become your spiritual children. And that's a process well worth starting while you, long before you ever court. And you save yourself a lot of grief if you're pretty mature in that process before you ever get involved with marriage and reproducing kids.
Now, we'll work with everyone wherever you're at. I'm just recommending that you become a certain amount of spiritual maturity before you uh, even get involved. So those are, those are eight aspects of covenant. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about a biblical view of history. It is uh, popular in some liberal circles to basically say the Bible tells a story in a narrative. Most conservatives don't see that. They just say it's literally true. But it's a both and not either or situation. The Bible is historically accurate. To have any other, and, it, and it's historically accurate to the point of being what's called inerrant. There's not a jot or a tittle or a word that's wrong. It became very popular in the 19th century to, for liberals to say these things didn't happen and everything, and that's part of what gave birth to what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. But William Foxwell Albright and many other archaeologists basically used the Bible as their guide to prove that the biblical world was accurate. They went and found Jericho just where the Bible said it would be, etc. Now, not every fact of Bible history has been confirmed by archaeology, but hundreds that were doubted uh, have been. And there's never been one that's been unproven through archaeology. And it's important to understand this, that if you take history classes in the modern secular humanistic university, you will be told that a guy named Herodotus is the father of history. He's, he was a Greek historian who wrote a book called The Persian Wars. Then you will be told that his successor named Thucydides became the father of scientific history, which is a total misnomer, but he, it should be that he became the father of critical history. Herodotus interviewed people and just reported whatever they said without any critical evaluation of the witnesses. If you were at my Thursday night class this week, you, we did, dealt with what's called historical or legal proof and how you cross-examine the witnesses. So um, Thucydides cross-examined the witnesses. So he, they say he's the father of scientific history, which should be critical history. However, they're missing the whole point that the Hebrews were the fathers of history because their God is a God, the God of the Bible is a God who is outside and above history and he created history for his eternal purposes and the facts of his acting in history are exactly the point and tell the story and therefore they were very meticulous in making sure they got it right. The Hebrews were the first historians, and they, the Bible starts with 17 books of history. Now, all histories are what's called polemical. That means they're selling you something. You know, like Jefferson Davis said, who was a general in the, or was he the president of the Confederacy, right? He said, uh, of course, I uh, can't believe I had to, remind myself that he he said whoever wins the war will write the history that's always true right whoever wins the wars writes the histories okay so all histories are selecting something and we're used to a secular humanistic world that looks at history a certain way but the bible is covenant history the bible is only concerned about one thing in history the unfolding of God's eternal plans and purposes through his calling a people to be his own possession. And that's what the Bible traces as history. All history is selective. And God has selected who he is, his, the unfolding of his eternal covenant, which is called the New Testament, and his doing that by time after time after time calling a people to, for his own possession until his very own son became the, the progenitor of a new race in the earth called born-again Christians. Now, the church has lost so much of this 
that what I'm talking about may sound even like weird or foreign to some of us. But this is the message of the whole Bible. We, why would we think that God would write a book and not have one central purpose or theme, as if he's schizophrenic or not that intelligent or a pretty bad writer? That's kind of what we imply in our, in our what, you know, proof text version of, of we got this truth and that truth, and, and we have a couple favorite texts, to, and we know a little bit of Bible here and there. I meet Christians all the time who have amazing amounts of opinions who've never even read the whole Bible one time through. Let me just appeal to you in all humility and, and honesty. Lower your opinions until you study his word all the way through several times then you'll begin to see the picture of who he is and what he believes i it's amazing to me how many young guys and young ladies have so firm of positions and so forth and they haven't even gotten through the whole text of scripture one time don't do that because you're asking for God to resist you. He's opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. And humble yourself under uh, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and whatever legitimate authority God has put in your life. And that, God, by the way, proves it all through the Bible that he can work through secular authorities such as your boss or your college professor. Appropriate, appropriate these things. So three takeaways from today. God's eternal plan must be his ongoing current eternal plan. Secondly, God is a make, maker of covenants. And thirdly, covenants are, are God's uh, view of history. And God, the, the Bible traces the history of the covenants from beginning to end. We'll start on the backside next week as chapter 3B. Amen.